0: Hi, this is Dr. Shannon Wong Lerner, host of The Intersection, where diverse folks converse. Created by and for queer people of color and gender non conforming people, The Intersection is curated side by side with some of the most brilliant and fascinating minds in our community. I create these programs keeping in mind all of the things that aren't said and all of the things that we aren't able to talk about within heterosexual and cisgendered produced shows. In the intersection, you'll find firsthand what the leading voices of our community are thinking, the work they're producing, the concerns they have, and what they hope for us and what they leave behind in their legacy. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, this is Dr. Shannon Wong-Lerner with The Intersection, and we're actually here with Lily Jung, who is DEI consultant and strategist, author of Ethical Sellout, which we'll be talking a lot about today, and also gender ambiguity in the workplace. This is episode number seven, The Tactics and Boundaries of the Ethical Sellout, Avoiding Purity Politics and Cancel Culture in DEI-Focused Work. Hi, Lily. I'm so glad to have you here.
1: It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: So I actually came upon Lily's work partly from LinkedIn. Actually, Lily, I believe you're one of the very first people I saw posting on LinkedIn when I got on the platform. Oh, what an honor. And I was newly out and I actually, and I, I responded to you in a message. I think you were probably the first person I reached out to cuz i had received my first hate message from uh, oh. from one of the posts and it was interesting because you know your response was like so appropriate as far as like creating a safe space for someone like me and also i feel like but also like not backing down from your message and from your outreach and the things that you say on linkedin so it really helped provide a good model and starting place for me and my own thought leadership.
1: I'm so and, thrilled to hear that. That was your first experience.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was scary, but then, you know, I also had Mad- Madison Butler mm. on my podcast too. Madison and, is incredible. Yeah. She's really great. And, and um, Emily Weltman, and then they were talking about and Madison Madison had said something interesting about how, When she was getting those kinds of hate messages, she knew she was doing something right, which Mm -hmm. confused me because I was Mm -hmm. not used to it. But uh, I think that's something, you know, that could be a good segue for our topic today with um, Ethical Sellout, which is a book that I have really enjoyed getting to know more about diversity, equity, inclusion in this very thoughtful, deep, deeply thoughtful way in the way that you present it. And so I'm wondering if you can just to start out to, for those of, uh, those of us that are listening who aren't familiar with the book and the project itself, could you just tell us what is the ethical sellout? It's just a, such a compelling term all on its own. And if you could give like a quickish synopsis of the project.
1: Sure, so the ethical sellout is first of all, my second book and the best effort of myself and Dr. Hansen, who I wrote the book with to, really dive deep into the nuances behind social justice movements and marginalized communities. The the reason we wrote the book is because in our own work, uh, Dr. Hansen is a therapist and works with clients. I'm a consultant. I work with companies and I come from a grassroots organizing background. In both of our realms of work, we sort of saw ourselves butting up against Black and white thinking against this very sort of moralistic, simple way of looking at the world um, that was really, frankly, causing people a lot of harm and causing people a lot of suffering. And so the book began as an exploration into what it means to sell out. Yes. And we actually, um, you know, if, if you read the book, we, we changed the, the purpose of the book. Uh, very close to the beginning because at the start, we really thought that there was a good way to sell out and a bad way to sell out. And we would very quickly find the bad way to sell out and would only need to look for the good way to sell out. And we actually didn't find that at all. We found a very complex, nuanced range of stories and the book is you know really based on stories and framed around stories. We found a range of stories that spoke to this gray space between you know, moralistic, good and bad, you know, re- regarding selling out, regarding knowing people's place in a world that is complex and often unequal and unfair and unjust. And we saw people just doing their best to make the compromises that they needed to, to survive. That was the story. And so the book ended up uh, transitioning into our exploration of what that meant, our analysis of why it is that people go through these challenges and how the interpersonal day-to-day choices that we all make tie into these larger systems of sexism, homophobia, transphobia, classism, late capitalism, all of the isms. Um, And then what can we do? to be mm-hmm. kinder to ourselves, to create healthier communities, to really remain fixated on our goal of accountability but not so rigid that we hurt ourselves in the process of trying to achieve justice. And that's what the book ended up turning into. We we really had a journey writing the book and you know it's our hope that folks reading um, can also experience some of that journey that we felt interviewing people and and reflecting on where this book fits in to the larger societal conversation and the book came out by the way in uh, 2019 so right before the uh, year everything ended right yes. <laughs> the uh, year that everything went upside down so it's I I would be lying if I said I could have predicted how timely it would have been and uh, I'm certainly grateful for it but this book is very very relevant now as we continue to have conversations about social justice and movement building and how we sustain ourselves. And quite frankly, I think that the roughest period many of us can remember.
0: I do. I think that also when I read the book, something that struck me about it is just like you said, you started out with a goal talking about sort of like the good ethical self. That's something we're going to talk about today Mm -hmm. too, is this kind of dualistic thinking. And then the one that was, you know kind of being true to themselves and then realize that there was no, you know immoral or bad ethical sellout. Right. Everyone's just trying their best. And that kind of the humanism of that story bringing that bringing that into DEI making that really clear and making it very practical. I feel like one of the things that Lily and I spoke about early on was that sometimes there can be debates either within DEI uh, amongst ourselves or outside and within. And I, I feel like a lot of times those debates go awry when people get so abstract that there's miscommunication and we don't know what one another are talking about. We make an assumption and we jump on each other. And so something I really loved about the book is just how practical it is because there are case studies and just the fact that you two as the authors were able to change the whole part of, a big part of the premise of the book to honor those stories and those being from people from marginalized communities finding their way mm-hmm. was something that I, I really enjoy about the book. I'm curious about, you talked a little bit about you know where it came from and how it got started. I'd love to hear more about your story surrounding the book. and My, my
1: personal story.
0: Uh, what, whatever story you want to tell, perhaps maybe what was going on in your life at the time when you decided this this needs to come out now you you had a strong pull and you knew that something different had to be written within this narrative
1: yeah so a lot of authors say that they write the book they need to read Mm -hmm. and that was certainly very true for myself i think around the time i was writing this book uh, i was experiencing a lot of new interest in my consulting business i was grappling with daily challenges regarding diversity equity and inclusion in corporate workplaces that felt a little less challenging when i was mostly fo- like focused on community organizing mm-hmm. because you know i was getting paid fairly large sums of money to come into companies and tell them what they already knew and that was not a morally easy choice for me now there there were some morally easy choices i i like to tell the story of um ice reached out for diversity consulting. Interesting. Yeah, it was very funny. Uh, uh, How do we make sure that we put a diverse number of children in cages? I don't know. Um, So I turned them down. But the the majority of the folks that I worked with were much more complex. It wasn't easy to say, oh, you're a terrible employer. Working with you is going to be, you know, you're just going to co-opt my voice and do harm. It wasn't that easy to say. But neither could I say, oh, you're a perfect employer. You have no problems at all. Because if they didn't have any problems, they wouldn't be reaching out to me. Sure. And so, the nature of DEI work, what I was grappling with, is this gray area between good enough and too flawed to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to figure out, first of all, where those boundaries for myself lied. And then more broadly, what this meant for the industry, what this meant for other people like me, because I know every single DEI practitioner has had this struggle before. It's, it's very easy when I tell stories about ice, for example, it's very easy for that to be like, oh yeah, clearly, clearly that's too bad. But that does sort of ask the question, where does that point lie? Where yes. is my own personal boundary where I'm I'm going to put my foot down? And it's something that I still explore to this day. That's That's really been my big personal reason for writing this book, which is to just have a slightly more intentional, rigorous way of evaluating my own business, my own work in this space to make sure that I'm still remaining true to my values and I'm still having the sort of impact that I want to in the world.
0: Do you ever feel like you are more willing to perhaps take on someone who you might have less likely been willing to take on after you spoke with them. And perhaps there's a new member of the of the team of that company or that entity. I know ICE is a really extreme example where you feel like I could actually help these people. But if you hadn't spoken to them, you might have said, no
1: way. No I've had those stories and I do wanna note every single client with no exception, my participation will help someone. Mm-hmm. I know that there's no client where what I do will help no one. I think what I am grappling with, which is a harder question, is is the, the positive value I'm going to create for this client worth the potential harm I'm going to create by either visibly or not working with them or tacitly approving yes. what they're doing. So with the ICE example, I mean, a big part of me was saying, if I can do one little thing to help migrants right now, yes. I will do it. And then another part of me was saying, if ICE shares my name mm-hmm. to promote what they're doing, sure, that will more than wipe out any positive impact that I would have had right? That would be using my voice to do harm. And, you know, it's, it's uh, actually really funny I share that story. I, I, I don't know if this was the exact same offer, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I heard a story about a month ago where a diversity consultant that did end up working with ICE uh, got called out for doing so and criticized for helping at all. And, uh, you know, I look at that story and I'm like, whoa, that could have been me. Sure. You know, like I, I could have done that. I, I could have been part of the problem. Um, but again, it's it's pretty gray, right? This entire conversation, I, I think, dives into a territory where people are more comfortable brushing off or laughing off than genuinely engaging with.
0: And it seems like that is part of the depth of this work that I feel like perhaps you're walking. People like Patrice and Palmer, whom I had on the show before, mm. was talking about how do we make this better? And sometimes there is a risk of saying that, especially when you go to the lengths of someone who you feel like is doing really poorly. Right. <laughs> and so that's something that I feel like is really interesting about the book too, that you say early on, there is this tension with people who start doing DEI work or whom companies want to you know, I would say allocate, I don't know what you want to say, but you, they, they want, they want them on their team, but perhaps not for the reasons they had hoped. And how do Mm. we, how do we negotiate that? Right. Which is part of the title of the episode. I think, you know, it's something to think about in terms of just DEI work being better. And I know that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show. And I know it's one of the reasons why you wanted to be on the show. So I'm curious because you have been doing this work for a while, and what has changed for you? You know, even since the book came out, how has the face of DEI, the culture changed? And perhaps what has remained the same in terms of accountability, responsibility? Because it is a it is a a big thing to take on. You know, even just saying you do DEI work, I think it's something that I it took me a while just to come to that point to actually say I'm doing that, especially because mm. I feel like in my previous career lives, I was so complicit in a different mm. way and just mm. being really unaware and right. uh, desensitized to things that were happening to me and those around me and feeling very helpless. And so I'm just, I'm really curious about changes you've seen.
1: Well, there's there's been quite a lot. I actually uh, told people... Just last year, that my favorite point of time as a DEI consultant was actually during the Trump administration.
0: Mm.
1: Not because the total number of clients was lower, because it actually was f- much lower. Business was harder to come by. DEI was kind of taboo. Um, you know, there there was that that uh, Justice Department memo that that essentially outlawed DEI within federal agencies. Um, you know, it was not a good environment. And I also thrived because for the first time, the people reaching out for DEI would all be genuinely believing in it. Yes. Right? Like that that has historically been the biggest problem for me and I believe the field. The extreme volume of people that say they want DEI but don't actually want it or say they're interested in DEI and don't know what they're signing up for. Those clients are the hardest to deal with because it takes a while to understand, right, whether they're in the right place or whether they're conceptualizing the work properly. And the vast majority of the time, they reach out and they say, we want DEI. And you ask, okay, what does that mean? And they say, we want one hour of diversity training, one hour unconscious bias training, so we can be done with this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And now you've wasted my time, you've wasted my assistant's time, you know, like, I'm not going to take on a project like that. And now in 2021, we're seeing this resurgence of the same sort of stuff, right, especially in in the wake of, of, um, you know, George Floyd's murder, and then the recent anti-Asian violence, um, Biden's election, there's been a surge of popularity for DEI, but what this means is that the overall quality of both the incoming requests and also the bar that clients set for DEI work themselves is just very low.
0: Yes, and it's, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: Oh, I I was going to add that we're also experiencing a problem in the field where we sort of have an explosion of supply to meet the explosion Mm. of demand. There are more DEI practitioners than ever. And uh, frankly, this is a problem because we have no quality control in this industry. Right. There's no standard. There is no shared education. There is no way in which we can ensure that other DEI practitioners are doing their work in an effective way. And so if a client says, Hey, I want a one hour diversity training that won't do anything, but will make me look good. If I turn them down, there'll be 20 practitioners that'll snap that up. Mm -hmm. And then I cannot say in good faith that that's actually going to help anyone at all. Sure. Right. And And, and that's a big challenge for the industry.
0: And it seems like that might be part of the accountability responsibility we haven't spoken about is, you know, you can't do everything. I think.
1: Absolutely not. For
0: for those of us who have worked in the nonprofit world or who have done a lot of social action work, there is that pressure. And it's why people burn out is just feeling like I have to take on everything and turning Mm -hmm. down work. can be hard. I mean, I feel like that sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about one of the things we spoke about early on is this idea of disposability within the culture that comes within the the dialogue and the, the conversations that people sometimes have, and perhaps that comes from the added pressure of, you know, also this resurgence and a, a lot of podcasts you know, that are that are out there too, and so people are being called to speak and be in the public much more frequently than before. There is a tendency, sometimes, this is something we spoke about early on, where there is a, like an attack that happens on someone who perhaps says something that, that sounds discordant to DEI values without mm-hmm. giving that person maybe even a chance to explore what they're saying. Or maybe they sure. said something and they were in uh, unconscious thought, or not un- unconscious, but uh, what is the word I'm thinking of? the Virginia Woolford stream of consciousness. They were like, maybe in a stream of consciousness, they were trying to figure something out and they were processing mm-hmm. and it just did, sounded really
1: not mm-hmm. so good. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. And so I'm curious about, and this is something that I think we can talk a little bit more about with Adrian Murray Brown's book, you know, uh, We Will Not Cancel Us, is what are some of the, the problems of that very uh, quick knee-jerk reaction that we... I see a lot in in DEI focused conversations. Maybe at right. least half the time I, I look at podcasts and I look at them a lot. I see something like this happening. So one person getting shut down. And then perhaps right. they don't get a chance to recover in that conversation. And then for a while after because they said the wrong thing. And maybe they did say the wrong thing. But how this also goes, I think, to that uh, the topic of what you're talking about companies wanting to do better, right? But yep. but having to pick and choose who those companies are? How can we okay. pick and choose those battles?
1: Yeah, so so uh, let me untangle that that question because sure. there, there were probably three or four very good questions here. Um, I'm gonna start by talking about disposability politics, which I'll define for people as an approach to interpersonal relationships or communication that sees or positions some people as disposable, as having belonging to the group that is conditional on their achievement of some arbitrary goal. In DEI-related spaces, oftentimes those conditions are related to how well they know the language Mm -hmm. and the concepts of DEI, including racial, gender, sexuality, class, nationality, religion-based equity work. Yes. Now, there's a tension there because literally nobody in the DEI space starts off knowing what they need to know. There is a natural learning process. I went through it, every DEI practitioner I know went through it, and as people who are learning, learning involves mistakes. Mm -hmm. But disposability politics basically jumps on mistakes and sees mistakes as evidence of people being bad, of people not belonging in the space. And uses that as an excuse to excise people from community yes what this looks like in practice is people will be talking yada 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 Um, let's say somebody misgenders a trans person Mm -hmm. instant right we don't we don't allow transphobes in here we're not going to create a space where you can oppress trans people Mm -hmm. you're not welcome right that's one example of it Um, another one is hey you know you said something really harmful around race or your ex girlfriend told us that you know you you were really harmful in that relationship this is a more common example right um, and we're not going to tolerate abusers here get out
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so you know there there are always good intentions behind these things the idea is if we allow imperfect people to remain in community it tarnishes community. Mm-hmm. However, that belief is flawed because it assumes that imperfect people are rare and that everyone else is perfect and that that's the norm. Mm -hmm. Anyone that has spent any second in these spaces knows that that's a complete lie. Right, And when disposability culture takes hold, it turns into a culture of fear and silence where everyone gets this intense imposter syndrome. They say, oh no, I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I'm not perfect. I'm the only one here who's not perfect. Everyone else is perfect. And so I guess I'll just watch every single word I say and never make a mistake because I know what happens to people who make mistakes. And in social psychology, we call this pluralistic ignorance Mm -hmm. where everybody actually shares a belief But because everyone else believes that this is not the group belief, they keep themselves in fear and isolation. Now, this is the one negative outcome of very DEI-focused groups, whether this is in organizations or in grassroots work or anywhere else, or on the internet. This happens a lot on the internet. unsurprisingly. So this is, I, I think, one of the challenges that we can talk about a little more on this podcast. I think another thing you brought up in your um, question was uh, speakers and DEI professionals. I think that's another question because there, I believe, is and should be a higher standard for people that are speaking on and representing groups. And so what this means is that the the bar for for error mm-hmm. I think is, is lower. The tolerance for mistakes is lower. So this is something that I think about a lot, right? I am painfully conscious that at some point in my career, I'm going to say something wrong. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> when that happens, excuse me, when that happens, I know that there are going to be people that use that mistake as an attack to say that I shouldn't be doing this work.
0: Mm-hmm
1: whether I use the wrong terminology or I uh, get too carried away during a talk and I make a metaphor that just doesn't land right, that I regret later, um, I'm very spur of the moment, right? I do a lot of improv um, and improv is dangerous in a field where, world, where, where words have impact. So I'm very aware of that. Um, I personally take great attempts, you know, great efforts to not make those sorts of public mistakes. I, I think through everything I'm saying, even though it's improv, it's a lot of work. Um, Do I think DEI practitioners should be given some slack? Yeah, I do. I also think there's a larger set of factors here, which is that we don't have standards for DEI practitioners. Mm -hmm. And because we don't have standards, we don't have necessarily the trust of everyone in the community. And when there's no trust, That's when these sorts of ideas about disposability politics and purity politics, which we haven't talked about yet, um, can sort of creep in and to flavor our interactions with each other in perhaps less helpful ways.
0: Yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, something that we spoke about earlier is, you know, where does this come from? How does this happen? Something that I studied in my work with rhetoric and communication and even performance and social performance is that there are scripts out there that are very common that we follow. Mm-hmm. We don't even know that we're following them. And that can happen in discourse, right? That can happen in thought. Mm-hmm. And it might not actually align with what our core beliefs are. Uh, we had spoken before about this term uh, mankeyism and how purity politics, disposability, cancel culture has the potential to create this uh, dangerous thought system of dualism. And it's actually something I talked about in uh, Scott Turner Schofield's show Mm. right before yours, we talked about gender binary as a very similar form of this dualism in the way that uh, trans people are sometimes uh, demonized in media and different cultures. And so, you know, I wonder if we can speak more about that. This is something I haven't spoken, I, I haven't heard spoken about a lot, but it's something mm-hmm. that came up in my own work before my doctoral work when I was working. Uh, I actually turned away a lot of work having to do with ethnography because I felt like it wasn't being done ethically. And there was this a- aspect of, of manchism happening where uh, people's emotions were seen in ter- placed within this dualism. And I feel like uh, the people that were these sort of like human subjects that ethnographers were looking at at groups, they they weren't really uh, giving them a chance to speak. They were sort of like observing them and then speaking on them. And so there was a there was a strange thing that was happening with um, good, bad, you know, um, shadow light in terms of the different topics they were take, taking up that seemed very fixed in their narrative. And so. You know, one thing I really like about our conversations and, and your book, Ethical Sellout, is just not that, ba- and your social media and, and thought leadership is not backing away from the, the complexity of this work, even in what you just said, is you like to speak spontaneously because it, I'm guessing it feels very authentic and good to you, but at the same time, you know, you have to think carefully through your right. words,
1: which is- Well, hard. I have a responsibility, which, you know, is an added dimension on it, right? When, when I have a lot of people following me, when a lot of people depend on me, that is added responsibility. Yes. I, I, um, I, I've been a writer for a long time. Um, I'm, I'm not gonna hide it. If you go looking, there are, you know, old articles that I wrote in college um, that are absolutely not kosher right? Like I, I uh, said some stuff that I mostly stand by, but I just kind of, you know, just threw them onto sure. a page and just called it a day. Um, and I can't do that now. Yes. That being said, you know, I would like us to have more understanding of nuance and complexity when it comes to these topics, um, but not necessarily putting all the burden on thought leaders, speakers, and practitioners, but instead, in trying to embody this among each other. I don't see the big problem being that speakers get called out. Yes. I, I frankly don't see that as the biggest problem in the world. I see this as a problem when let's say small DEI councils or working groups tear themselves apart inside organizations because they can't square away the reality that all of them are in a different place in their learning journey mm-hmm. and that none of them are equipped to do the work and that all of them are imperfect. What do
0: you- what do you think about that collective idea? Because I really love that. It's something I think about and I use in my own coaching work too with communication and speech is that a lot of the clients I get who are women of color and you know LGBTQIA+, a lot of us feel like when we're called to speak, we're on our own. That's an old model. That's a mm-hmm. traditional model of public speaking that is you know, not collective. I don't feel like it's informed by DEI work and a sense of community. And I would love to hear, we don't have to know everything right now, but maybe just like the nascent thoughts on how can we have accountability? Because I know that, you know, when we're making our way and we're making our name, we're becoming more visible, the words we use and the kind of responsibility we need to take might not be as apparent as like for you now, right? So when I read your work, I see you as uh, someone who is taking that into account. You are careful with your words. I see that as someone who studies communication and speech. And I also see you as a sort of like a mentor, right? For, for people, I don't know if you call yourself that, but I'm, I'm wondering if there is some sort of collective way. There, it is a flaw it's, for me as a, as a speech person, as a public speaking person, professional, I've I've always found that when uh, when people of color and people from marginalized group, their greatest fear when they when they give a speech is not that they're going to, not simply they're going to fail, something also about their identification, their orientation, yes. their process of, of yes. learning that is systemic.
1: That I have a lot of thoughts about this.
0: Since they were kids. But I feel like this also goes into this problem of what we're talking with cancel culture and the kind of. You know uh, the reaction sometimes to do this because we don't have the resources. We don't know what else to do. What What would be your thoughts on on having that accountability, but not having it be individual in that individualist, rugged individualist way, that kind mm-hmm. of imperialist, colonialist way, but having it be collective? Like I'm going to check you, but I'm also going to be compassionate, right? And not like go overboard and throw you off the cliff,
1: right? Right. So, um, how so do I think. Do that? The, the most important thing to start this off with is that when people from dominant groups or with dominant or privileged identities make mistakes, mm-hmm. they are never, ever, ever seen as representatives of their group. Yes. Ever, right? Um, if, uh, if uh, I don't know, Louis CK, right, pops up and, and starts doing horrible things, no one goes like, wow, you know, White men, terrible, right? Mm -hmm. Time to get rid of all white men because of one person. Um, However, right, people of color have that double standard where everything we do is simultaneously representative of our group when we fail Mm -hmm. and a fluke when we succeed. Yes. Right, and this added burden makes things so difficult and makes failure so hard to stomach for marginalized folks because we're not given any room to fail. And sometimes this toxic thinking can even seep into our own communities when none of us even give each other room to fail Mm -hmm. because we have adopted this toxic way of thinking where we see the failure of any one of us as an indictment of all of us and respond to that by removing the people who fail Mm -hmm. rather than ensuring that all of us succeed. Yes. And so what I would like is for us to build communities that are so strong that when somebody fails the first response is where did we as a community go wrong and how can we as a community do right by ensuring that you learn from this and that Mm -hmm. we heal from this. And I don't think we've gotten to that point yet. We don't have communities around DEI work. We we don't have communities of practice. We don't have communities of healing and resistance. We don't have that sort of thing. Even in DEI councils and working groups within companies, these aren't true communities. These are are oftentimes uh, marginalized folks who are working together out of this feeling of desperation that if they don't do everything right, that nothing will happen. And that they can't afford to have any complications in their work. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, those feelings of scarcity, those feelings of time pressure, those feelings of marginalization and being up against something bigger, all of those suppress our, our thinking. All of those put us away from a mindset of abundance and mm-hmm. sustaining each other towards a mindset of scarcity and, and making sure that we don't lose more. And we need to fight that, right? Even when we are struggling under oppression, we need to realize that if we engage with each other through this lens of scarcity, we're only going to do more harm.
0: You're about midway through the intersection, Diverse Folks Converse podcast. I wanted to take a moment to let you know why I created The Intersection. It was because I didn't see a lot of representation of the most brilliant and creative minds in our communities. All I saw were misrepresentations in popular culture and the media. So I wanted to provide a free and accessible outlet for us all to enrich our lives and to provide meaning for the things that we experience every single day. None of us get paid for the intersection and this is not a income generating endeavor for any of us. We do this because we want to add to our culture and we want to add to your lives. So we just ask that you participate as well and contribute to us through subscribing to our channel and, and leaving reviews and telling your friends and telling the community, put it up on web boards share it in social media, tell people about us, but really subscribing, adding the reviews to Dr. Shannon Wong Learner's YouTube channel, which houses the intersection, to the intersection on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is really the best way to let other people know about us and to help us increase our visibility so we can increase yours. Thank you so much, and You can now return to the show and thank you for listening. And I think, you know, that perhaps when I also, when I think of what you're talking about and the way you talk about DEI, you've often used these words, individual, uh, sorry, individual systemic, right. Mm -hmm. And talking about the difference. I'm wondering We don't have to know the answer now, but I'm just kind of thinking through this is how can that systemic part turned around in a generative way? All the things that you're talking about, healing, collectiveness, you know, not trying to remove the bad one. I almost think of that in the, it's like a trace of eugenics or something, you know, like we're going to take the weak one, we're going to get them out to make sure we are okay.
1: Right. Except Um, all of us all of us are marginalized and sure. all of us are imperfect and all of us are weak right yes. and by that's so this scarcity politics, and that's the scarcity right? part and by coming down hard on the people that make a mistake we strengthen our own in-group identity yes which keeps us safe for this round of eliminations right it's yes. it's it's a very um colonial imperialist mindset since you use the words, right? Like that's, it's, it's not the way we need to be thinking for trying to build communities and movements that can stand the test of time.
0: And it seems like in that way, you know, there needs to be more work. This is a term that I use from the inside out. You know, I have this whole series on coming out, going within and focusing on healing and even spirituality within queer community. And uh, I'm curious about A book that you mentioned, uh, We Will Not Cancel Us and Other Dreams of Transformative Justice and thinking about Adrienne Mary Brown's book. Mm -hmm. Maybe this might be a good time to go into that a little more because she says similar to things to what you're saying in a different way, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, from their experience. But she critiques cancel culture. And I feel like a lot of this supports what we're talking about right now
1: Mm -hmm.
0: in confronting systemic racism sexism homophobia transphobia classism and all these intersections and perhaps a way we can talk about this is i think sometimes when people are perhaps not able to see this pattern happening or you know we don't have the tools to respond in the way that perhaps we should it is the sense of those things you know racism, sexism, the intersectional racism as something that is seen in this macro way, but it's hard to parse that apart in a smaller way, in a nuanced way, in a subtle way, which could still have a lot of harm. Right. Oh, go ahead.
1: So I I was going to start with this relates back to a question that you asked earlier that I didn't get to um, around the relationship between individuals and systems. Yes. And I think we will not cancel us does a phenomenal job of tackling the same question from a grassroots organizing praxis community building frame where, you know, the lens that is taken in that book says if we are trying to create healthy movements, that's that, Persist over the long term and win, right? Systems. Yes. We need to have healthy interactions and relationships between people, individuals. The way that I tackle it is if we want to create healthy organizations that have good policies, good practices, good cultures, we need to go beyond the one on one conversations we have that are just focused on individuals. Mm-hmm. But we also can't disentangle the individual from the system. Right. And I think what we will not cancel us does a really good job of is draws that connection. It says when our interpersonal reactions are laden with this suspicion of wariness, of scarcity, of purity and disposability, we will never be able to create a movement that doesn't eat itself alive. Yes. Right. And and that I, I think is really insightful. That mirrors some of my own experience within movement. You know, years ago as an organizer, I saw the same thing. I dealt with the same thing. And I, you know, you, you you could say transitioned out of, sometimes I say ran away from, um, but I ran away from that to go to corporate. And it was the same thing. Yeah. I found the exact same thing, right? People are are still going through the same challenges that they've been going through for decades where we don't trust each other. We don't trust this work. We don't feel like, you know, we can succeed. And so all of us need to be hyper-vigilant and aware and, and make sure that no infiltrators come in and protect ourselves. And, and it, it stops the sort of critical thinking we need to do nuanced DEI work, right? Around allyship, around coalition building, around engaging with elders. This is another point that like, you know, takes me off. There, there are a bunch of young folks today that are just like, oh, our elders don't use the right language. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they don't belong in movement. And I'm like, are you caring? Like, these are people that have been doing this work their entire lives. Like, who cares if they say transsexual instead of transgender? Yes. I literally don't care. Like they have decades of wisdom. Yes. And we are we're excising them because they don't fit into our, you know, very naive notion of what it means to be a good activist. Like that's completely ridiculous. Right. And and yet because people are missing the forest, right? For the trees, because people can only see in these micro interactions, they are uh, hampering their own movements, right? And I see this so much on the internet. Um, And I've also seen this in, in you know DEI councils and task forces and LinkedIn groups and all of the above. Because we can't see the movement because we don't contextualize ourselves in history, we keep making the same mistakes over and over. And not realizing, and it it just it just really takes me off. Right, <laughs> I I I can't bear to see it.
0: I mean, I think this also goes to integrating DEI, and I it, it also could go into issues of trust. I think of people within different. Uh, Uh, Medical fields, or I was thinking, name we had mentioned was Cheryl Leong's work around decolonizing psychology, and Mm -hmm. they talk a lot about, you know, a lot of these issues in a very nuanced way from that lens. But it's also difficult, I think, from I think sometimes marginalized communities and the histories that we have with different institutions and abuses that have happened with those in those institutions to accept how, even from my perspective as someone who, said, who says public speaking, right? That can be a red flag for people. It's like, because there's a sense of public speaking in school, the time I was shamed when I was little, public speaking mm-hmm. in college. I wonder if there's a way to, to open the doors more to, to be more integrative in that way. I don't know if you have thoughts about that because I, I'm, I flashed on this when you were talking about the youth the kind of generational blocks that happen sometimes.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's not entirely generational. I, I think it's just anyone that isn't connected with history yes. is doomed to repeat it, right? Sure. Um, but re- regarding your question about opening up some of that, that uh, opportunity and conversation, I think the reason why I do my work with corporate is because I truly believe that trust has to be built from the institutions that have caused harm Mm -hmm. and that we can't put the burden of creating that trust on the communities that have been harmed by it. Yes. And so I talk a lot with leaders. I say, look, I know you're good people. I think the thing you did recently was pretty good. You know why everyone hates it? Not because you did the wrong thing, but because you did the wrong thing 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago, one year ago. And until you repair that harm, there is quite literally nothing you can do that'll make people respond well to you. And that's that's the, the uncomfortable truth. So a lot of the work that I do is to not just give leaders best practices, but to help leaders rebuild burnt bridges. And Oftentimes the leaders are, are completely clueless about what bridges they burnt um, in, in classic corporate leadership fashion. Um, but you know this is really where the work lies because how are we supposed to tell communities to trust us or each other when what us means when you're talking about corporate leaders is just the source of harm, the source of policies that have had bad impact, the source of toxic culture, um, the source of silence in the face of discrimination. That's what people think about. And so the first step is to repair this harm and to reset the relationship back to neutral And then you start building trust again from scratch. Then you start doing things out of goodwill. Then you start, you know, initiating conversations that you you don't expect anything out of. And over time, you will build up that trusting relationship again, where communities will say, you know what, you you haven't given us anything yet, but I have faith in you and I will help. And that, that situation feels so far away for many leaders right now because they are stuck in this loop of nobody trusts us. Mm -hmm. so we're going to tell them to trust us and then when they don't we're going to harm them more and then wonder why they don't trust us and then marginalized communities are just like they're showing their colors we'll never trust them like they're always going to be the enemy right while also grappling with the reality that until you work with folks with power you know i don't know barring revolution (laughs) um it's very difficult to access any change or any power within those organizations. And, you know, I, I do believe that at times there, there is a time and place for folks to say, you know what, screw working with the system. The system yeah. is not going to change. We're going to try to change it from the outside. I think that's valuable, but I believe it should be a tactic of last resort rather than what you start out with. Um, it's this is all really complicated. There's no way that I can talk about this issue in in an hour that really lays bare the com- complexities of it. But I hope this gets at a bit of you know
0: some I of do, the challenges. I do have a follow up question on what you just said. I'm thinking about power. I'm thinking about authority. I'm thinking about the people that you work with, you know, in the different corporate entities where you're striving to bring in, and I love the language you're using, relationships, right? Because the way I see, I'm envisioning your work. We haven't talked about this and how you do it, but the way I envisioning it is like, you have to build a relationship with the people in these corporations so then they can build and hopefully repair the relationships they have with these communities. Is there a process and a point where you feel like the leaders of these corporations or whomever has power are, can recognize that they need to relinquish that, you know, you can't tell the people you've harmed, like now get better. I've seen that before. (laughs) It doesn't work, you know, and to me, that would also help with the cancel culture issue too, is because like, we are all so protective of each other because of people in power, not being able to relinquish power, not even to admit that they have that power in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so does there, Is there a moment where part of your work with them, your DEI work is not about, and this is something that Patrice and I spoke about. It's not about what to do because there's really not like this worksheet. I don't see like, in your work, you know, ten steps for DEI success. Like I actually these are, do have. A oh, really? These are yeah. proof ten steps. But well, I'm guessing so, they're pretty open ended. Teaching them how to listen.
1: So I I don't have this myself, but I refer people a lot to this site called BiasInterrupters.org. Okay.
0: Um,
1: they're they're good DEI things. I think I give that to people as a starter, as the what. Yes. But the what isn't actually the core. Work of DEI. That's that's why I just give that to everyone for free, right? Like, I, I mean, and it's on the internet, so it's not like sure. you know I can make people pay for it. But I say, look, that's that's small potatoes.
0: Yeah. The
1: what is easy, right? Like I I can tell you in five minutes what to do. The how is the part that messes every company up. Mm-hmm. And the how is why you bring in a consultant, right? Not because I can say, make your hiring process less biased. Like there's literally no manager that, that I can say that to who, who won't be like, yup, we've thought about that, right? The question is how, how do we do it? How do we talk to stakeholders? How do we build trust? How do we change processes? How do we change systems? That's what they want help with. Um, so yeah, you know, that's that's a lot of what I talk about. And part of that is talking about culture, leadership style and saying, guess what, you know, as a leader, you own at least some of this problem. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're, you know, a great leader and you're, you're just suffering from the culture of your organization. Okay, well, then you have a responsibility to push back on it. Maybe you're a leader that hasn't really, you know, reflected much on your, your leadership and you're actually embracing these toxic ideas of how to be a leader. In which case I would say you can't make any change without changing how you relate to people. Yes. This is why sometimes I tack on the uh, executive coaching to my title, not because I fashion myself an executive coach, but because you can't get this work done without holistically looking at every source of of the the system's impact on people. And that's policies, practices, culture, and also leadership. Yes. Right? So I, I often find myself working with leaders who say the problem is everywhere else and not me. And I say, I'm sorry, buddy, I have some tough news for you right? Because you are creating, in, in part, some of the conditions that everyone else is struggling with. Mm-hmm. And we can change everything else. But if you don't change, right, you are the root. It's just going to grow back.
0: Do you feel like people get to the point where they have that awakening, that transparency? Oh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pat myself on the back. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, you know, it's, it's really not, um, this is also something that I say, uh, or something that, that I have begun saying since, uh, my therapist a couple years ago, uh, told me about it, which is you, you do not have the responsibility to change other people, right? The only people, people change when they want to change. And so I can help, but I don't think there's any consultant in the world that's good enough to just take any leader and be like, voila, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> it's time, you're a new person. Um, so, so sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, I, I do my best, I, I help them understand what's going on. And if they're at a place where they're ready to experience that aha moment, then I guarantee that they'll experience it. Mm-hmm. And if they're not ready yet, I do my best and do harm reduction for everything else. I don't make magic, right? Sure. I, I do my best to to make organizations better than I left them. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd love to talk about, um, I know we're we're getting close to the hour. So, but I'd love to talk to you about perhaps conservative notions of cancel culture and how this term has been misused. Mm -hmm. So I, for research purposes, for uh, something I was doing with a client, I was looking at Ben Shapiro (laughs) And it wasn't the content, Uh, but it was his style and his demeanors. A client was interested in him. So I looked at it and I said, oh dear. Well, I looked at a bunch of his shows and I saw how he was, it was right after you and I had spoken. So I thought, well, this has to be clarified because he talks about, you know, he critiques DEI efforts from the, with the goal of tearing it down, right? And so it's very different. And he uses term like cancel culture, but without obviously covering the complexity of anything that has happened. Oh, yeah. Or naming anyone really who is like calling someone out. He just kind of does these blanket terms. The left, right? Cancel culture. So I'm curious, what is the difference between what we're talking about and kind of how your seeing it in this holistic way, right? This healing way, this collective way and people like him, these kind of conservative-
1: Yeah, talk well, it's the difference between a cynical view of the purpose of this work and a hopeful view. Yes. That's it, right? If you think this entire practice of equity, of, of inclusion, if 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 you think all of that is laughable, right? Then everything the left is doing sure you know, you're, you're going to see through that lens. And, you know, I do think that, first of all, when conservatives use cancel culture, they misuse it to replace accountability. Yes. Which, which is really silly, right? Um, like, oh, a workplace was found mistreating its employees, right, um, now it's getting canceled. And I'm like, no, it's not, it's getting, safe labor practices, <laughs> like that's, that's not canceling. Canceling is usually what happens when, you know, marginalized communities are eating each other. That's what I wanna talk about. And I don't even say cancel culture anymore. Like I say, disposability politics or disposability culture, because that's really what it is. Um, if we're talking about like large public figures getting taken down, like, yeah, you know, that, that occupies a, um, a pretty big space in in I think many conservatives' minds, because that seems to be the biggest issue. It's probably the one that you know most threatens them, which is why they see it as biggest. But you know, I, I I can't even say that kind of cancel culture works. If you try to go after someone that's that powerful, they usually just laugh at you, send you a cease and desist, or sue you, and then you're done. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like accountability doesn't even happen there. So I I don't even try to have that conversation. It's a red herring. Um, it's really a straw man argument of, of, of why cancel culture is bad, because they're not even talking about the right thing. And so I don't engage. Um, what I do think is worth talking about is what communities that are hopefully hopeful and care about this work can do to ensure that we actually win
0: yes. and
1: actually succeed. And I see disposability politics or cancel culture or whatever you want to call it as being one of the biggest roadblocks of our own making, right, That that are perhaps well justified, but nonetheless, really damaging that we need to resolve and to clear up and to move past.
0: And something I also think of, where did I put it? Here it is. <laughs> One thing I think about, about your book that I, I appreciate is, and something that actually I was like a healing moment for me. I'm, you know, when I first picked it up, I was thinking it was, it's like a business book, but then there are all these great case studies and testimonies in it. And I was driving and I actually like shed tears Mm because there was a story in here that was very, it was almost exactly like something I had been through in my academic career. Uh, So one thing that I think about with disposability culture and these kind of purity politics and the hurt that happens is perhaps people being made invisible who already felt invisible and feeling like they're not seen or not being seen, not being heard because they said something wrong and they, didn't have a chance to correct it or to have a conversation. And in this, in your book, you have made those voices, those marginalized stories very visible in complex ways. And so I'm really curious about you know, what, what is the most powerful impact that you, that you envision for the ethical sellout around these conversations we're having or not in that kind of visibility that you're giving to people like me, people like you, you know, other people who feel like our stories have just not been told.
1: Yeah, it's it's my hope that this book can reach someone that hasn't given themselves the grace or the space even to process their own experiences. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of folks that uphold disposability politics solely because they are scared of getting hurt by them. Sure. And if there's anything I can do or I want to do. It's to get folks realizing that there are other ways forward than this. Um, I I actually worked with one organization um, that that was having the exact problems that we talk about in this book on an organizational level. It it was a a fairly left-leaning organization focused on some social good and disposability politics was actually organizational culture. It's the very first time I've I've actually seen disposability politics as organizational culture. Hmm. Um, very depressing, but um, the default dominant communication model between everyone across all hierarchy levels was if you make a mistake, you're canceled. Yes. Right, and this actually translated into like firing and termination, right? And, and like actual discipline. Um, it, it was the most dysfunctional version of this that I've seen so far. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think it's fixed yet. We're still trying to tackle it. Um, but I talked with that client very frankly about the chances of them actually succeeding what they wanted to do as an organization if they let this continue. And did it help? I think so. Right. But like, these are, these are big, like these are really big challenges. Cause I think especially people that are focused on doing good for the world, Mm -hmm. we have so much pressure on us. There's so much burden to be, you know, the best to make sure that we're doing this work effectively to resist, you know, all the forces of evil and cynicism and systemic oppression that are coming down on us. And um, I get it. You know, I've been in that place myself. I think, if there was a way to maintain purity politics and cancel culture and win we would have done that already mm-hmm. but we're not winning and we're only hurting ourselves mm-hmm. and so i think you know we we need to think of another way forward that has more abundance built into it that is more sustainable that is more human that recognizes that all of us including community leaders including people that people think as as unassailable or perfect are in fact very imperfect. I I willingly admit that myself, I'm very, very imperfect. Um, And go on from there, right? To say, power is real, but, right? Like even those without power are not morally pure just because Mm -hmm. we're marginalized people, right? And those who make mistakes are not morally, I don't know, garbage. Sure. Just because they've made mistakes. This is all of us and it's our job. We're here so that we can do this work to create equity. Mm -hmm. That's the end goal, right? Like equity or bust, right? I I don't think that we should be fighting amongst ourselves if that's not helping us at all. Like we need to stay focused on that goal. We need to be focused on taking care of each other so we can achieve it.
0: That's, I think that's a really good, you know, food for thought for all of us as we, you know, enter this domain and navigate it. Is there any way that you uh, would like to tell the listeners of the intersection on how they can get involved more with the ethical sellout? You know, you've kind of given this really good information from your perspective and your experience on ways we can navigate the DEI space, whether we're practitioners or we're just in the conversation. I'm, I'm really curious about, uh, you know, best place to learn more about your work and how can, how can we reach out if we're, if we're interested in learning more with your organization? And then also just any closing advice you have to listeners who are hearing this show.
1: Sure. I'll just say, follow me on LinkedIn. And, uh, that's really where I post pretty much everything. So follow me there, engage. I post about these topics fairly often along with other DEI things. Um, As for, oh, and of course you can buy the book. Um, (laughs) If you'd like to buy it more ethically, you can buy it from my publisher, Barrett Kohler. Um, but if you need to, you can also buy from Amazon and uh, make the choices you need to that fit your circumstances. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's a little micro selling out moment too. I, <laughs> I, I always uh, debate whether to tell people to buy it on Amazon because Amazon does a really good job of um, uh, really showing how popular books are because of their stats. Sure. So if I send more people to Amazon, my profile as an author goes up, but Amazon is also evil. So, yes. you know, just a day in the life
0: and then also just this little more information too is that i know that there are t- this is how i got your book i actually got several copies is i got this big box of books from barrett kohler at a mm. certain i think s- several times during the year they have these 20 25 off sales mm-hmm. so you actually get a lot cheaper and ethic more ethically <laughs> through barrett kohler in those mm-hmm. times And then you can, what I did is I stockpiled. I got multiple copies of books Mm. uh, from authors whom I admire. And then I can give those to clients and send Mm. them out. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And it's cheaper. It's actually more economical than Amazon. And This is true. It's just slightly less convenient. (laughs) Yeah, it is a little less convenient, but that's okay.
1: So the uh, advice that I'll leave people with is... This book I think is useful for individuals. I think it is more useful for communities. Okay. And so what I would like people to do is to bring this book into spaces that they occupy, whether that's a reading club, whether that's Mm -hmm. a DEI council, whether that's an employee resource group or affinity group, bring this book in and use it as a way to say the things that everyone's thinking, but not saying right? This book can be your excuse.
0: I think it's an excellent, yeah. You
1: can even make me the bad guy. I don't care, (laughs) right? Just say like, oh, you know, we're forced to lay out all of our problems on the table because of this book. And so let's start saying them. Let's start Mm -hmm. naming the complexities of this space. Let's start putting them all out there and grappling as a community with how to deal with them rather than staying stuck in our heads and trying to be perfect for each other when we know that everyone else is going with the same challenges.
0: And I know we just have a couple minutes, but I always ask my guests, what is your main takeaway for this episode and for our conversation? Do you have anything you'd like to share for that?
1: Oh, you want me to share what their main takeaway? No,
0: be? what your main takeaway is. My like main takeaway, For this okay, okay. episode, for our conversation.
1: Got it. Um, let's see, it's, it's always really nice hearing about how this work appears in other spaces. Um, you were sharing with me some information uh, from psychoanalytic theory, which was new to me and and really fun to read. And I was like, oh, look at that. You know, like this is happening in a lot of places, like folks in multiple industries in and out of academia are challenging these issues of, of you know, black and white thinking and purity politics. Um, and that's reassuring, mm-hmm. right? It's It's always nice to know and we've said this a couple of times that I'm not the only one doing this work. There are other people, there are folks that are pushing for this. Um, and it's my hope that after listening, um, all of the listeners today can uh, be part of that change as well and, and help to push for more complexity and more compassion um, and nuance as we go about doing this work.
0: I think something that I, I've i thought about you know, throughout this conversation, the thing that I'm walking away from is that complexity is a good thing. And even if you feel uncomfortable or you feel challenged, I felt challenged in the course of this conversation, just like, oh, I haven't thought about that before. How do I navigate that? And you know, something I learned in the beginning of this journey is that just because you're scared of something doesn't mean you should run from it. Just because something feels uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's bad, right? When this is, I think, where the, the question at hand with disposability and purity politics comes in is having the trust in one another to, to be willing to work through something and build relationships, right? Is I think the goal. And so there's also
1: one more thing that I sure. want to add, which is that harm can and will happen. Yes. You will be harmed, you will do harm. It's much more important to learn how to recover from that and heal from that and make amends for that when you're the one causing harm than it is to learn how to avoid it. Mm -hmm. And this is perhaps the most uncomfortable thing of all, right? knowing that you, and I say you referring to yourself, Shannon, myself, every listener, you have harmed somebody in the past. Mm -hmm. You have hurt somebody. You will do so in the future, right? It hurts to hear.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And we're not going to be able to heal collectively and create movements that persist unless we learn how to take responsibility for that, accept it, and help all of us grow beyond those points rather than just exiling the people who mess up.
0: Yes, thank you so much. I think that's a really well put (laughs) for the end of this episode. So I'm gonna close out. Uh, You've been here with Lily Jung, and our episode was episode seven of the Intersection Diverse Folks Converse. The Tactics and Boundaries of the Ethical Sellout, Avoiding Purity Politics and Cancel Culture in DEI-focused work. Thank you so much again for being here. Thanks for having me. You've just finished an episode of the Intersection Diverse Folks Converse podcast. I'm so happy that you decided to join us And you finish the whole podcast to hear all about the stories and lives and the experiences of our guests. I would like to just offer you right now an opportunity to continue to listen to us. You can always find us here at Anchor under the intersection, colon, Diverse Folks Converse, folks, F-O-L-X, or you can find us on YouTube under Dr. Shannon Wong Learner L-E-R-N-E-R YouTube channel. We also have a Facebook page, also under the intersection, Diverse Folks Converse, that you're welcome to join to find out all about upcoming episodes and guests. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time.